everyone. This is Pratyusha Parkala and welcome to another episode of the Prana Cafe podcast where every week we're talking about environment and sustainability with a lot of hope and optimism and focusing on climate action. To get you started, let me tell you, the UK will be hosting the 26th UN Climate Change Conference of Parties, which is called COP26 in Glasgow. The climate talks will bring together heads of state climate experts and campaigners to agree on taking coordinated action to tackle climate change. As COP26 presidency, the UK is especially committed to working with all countries and stakeholders on the front line of climate change to inspire action ahead of COP26. And as you all know, my home country is India and I presently live in the UK. So I am trying to converge forces and I'm fortunate to be able to interview a key figure of this climate change conference. On this week's episode of the Prana Cafe podcast, we have with us Keno Flati, who was appointed the UK government's COP26 regional ambassador to Asia Pacific and South Asia in March 2020. A career diplomat, Ken has experience in a number of foreign office departments and has worked on a wide range of issues from EU cooperation to security, counterterrorism and migration, economic and energy issues. And on this episode specifically, our focus for today will be on prospects of the green recovery across Asia and the need to accelerate the energy transition from fossil fuels towards a more environmentally friendly energy sources. And why should we do this? Thank you so much for being here, Ken. Welcome to the Prana Cafe podcast. Hello, Prathresha. How are you? I am doing good. How are you doing? <laughs> Very well, thank you. Thank you so much for doing what you're doing, Ken. Um, I am going to directly address the elephant in the room, which is the pandemic. And uh, it has disrupted a lot of things. But in a normal world, we would have been counting down to COP26 right now because it was supposed to happen in November 2020, right? That's about a month from Absolutely. now. But now it's been pushed to November 2021. So what do you see as one good thing and one thing that is worrisome that it's been moved an entire year? Sure. Well, I mean, first of all, I would say this was not a decision that um, the government took lightly. And of course, we took it in partnership with our um, uh, UN FCCC colleagues and partners. Um, the reason we did it um, was, of course, for the safety of delegates. Um, there's no way um, to hold an international meeting um, with such large numbers of people coming together um, safely in given the current pandemic situation. So that, that was the thinking behind it. I would say the good thing um, that came out of the postponement is that, of course, we have more time now to deliver strong climate action. And this will be the top priority for our government in the year ahead, um, making sure that there are clear um, signs of movement to tackle emissions, to tackle the, the effects of climate change by governments worldwide. And I think by having this extra time, it will allow international leaders time to focus, um, whereas at the moment, of course, the focus worldwide is very much on the COVID-19 pandemic, and it will allow us time um, to rally support um, for strong climate action. But possible bad thing about um, delaying the event is, of course, the risk of losing momentum. The creation of my role, of course, meant that um, we're able to be engaging with governments across Asia. So I speak with several um, governments um, every week. Um, and we're trying to do the same in continents across the world. Um, we're also trying to work um, out ways to continue to build momentum um, between now and November next year. One of those um, events will be the Ambition Summit, 
Um, so on the um, fifth anniversary of the Paris Agreement on the 12th of December, we will be hosting a virtual meeting of leaders to um, recall the importance of climate ambition. And we're also looking at a timeline of other events between now and November next year, including, of course, um, the pre-COP, which will be hosted by Italy, and the Youth COP, um, which will be hosted around the same time um, in Italy as well. But this is a significant uh, attempt at ensuring countries will be committed to the climate action. Exactly. So right now, uh, I'm here in the UK with my Shevening Scholarship, and I'm studying environment development and politics. And one thing that has come across multiple readings is the role of government, because it is central to both policymaking and implementation. We need strong support for renewables, if that's what we're looking at, be it subsidies or preferential policies, and only then the massive expansion is possible. But as governments function on restricted budget, do you think a stimulus package of sorts would help the government? Well, I would say that the COVID-19 pandemic has, of course, devastated economies worldwide. And so irrespective of climate change, um, governments are already looking at economic stimulus packages um, to be launched in coming months. And I was discussing this um, with a government in Southeast Asia just earlier this week. We're sending the message to our partners across Asia that whenever governments are developing these economic stimulus packages to build jobs, to rebuild economies after the COVID-19 crisis, it's very important that those are targeted towards, as you say, renewables. And I also, I would say, wider green tech um, innovation issues. Um, it's, we don't have this kind of situation very often in the world. It's usually once in a generation um, you would have economic stimulus packages being worked up of the volumes we're talking about now. And of course, working with industry um, to ensure that there are um, opportunities um, across industry to drive down emissions and to discover new greener ways of, of delivering um, goods. I would also note that um, we think this is a win-win situation because it's been proven that investment in renewables generates more jobs um, than investment in fossil fuel projects. Um, they also will position countries that are adopting um, these technologies at the front of growth sectors. Um, it's predicted by all the major international agencies that the fossil fuel sector will decline in coming years, whereas renewable sectors and green tech sectors will be booming. Um, so countries which invest now in those areas will be positioning themselves to be much more competitive um, in the years ahead. In fact, you opened up a point for my next question, which was about renewable energy. Say wind and solar, they were gaining wider acceptance. Uh, but now are in a paradox because of the lower fuel prices. So if this corona-led recession extends beyond 2020, there would be low growth and investing in clean energy. But you just answered it saying that, uh, you know, in fact, if you invest now, you will reap the benefits much later. So some say renewables would only become con uh, competitive with coal-fired power plants in most of the Asia-Pacific beyond 2025. Now that's a five-year delay. So how would we assess this time and the growth? Well, you're right, of course, that some people say this, but I think I would, I would politely disagree because we have seen um, very strong reports from the International Energy Agency, um, from the International Renewable Energy uh, Agency, and from Carbon Tracker, for example, which all say um, that it is now cheaper um, to adopt renewables um, than to invest in fossil fuels today um, for two-thirds of the countries across the world. And that is true in every single ASEAN country, um, for example. Um, so 
I think it is important to note that this is not something in the future we're talking about. These are opportunities which are happening today. And for example, um, we saw during the pandemic that India used um, dramatically higher uh, amounts of renewable energy um, during the pandemic than it ever had um, before, whereas the use of coal um, fell dramatically. And we're seeing um, investors turn away um, from coal and towards renewables in, in very large numbers. Um, so I would say this is an opportunity. Um, there are also studies which suggest that as early as next year, um, in some countries, not all countries, um, it will actually be cheaper um, to build new renewable energy plants than to run existing coal. Um, so it's clear that if countries do decide um, to invest uh, in further new coal power plants, very quickly, those plants will be uneconomic and they will be stuck with stranded assets for the future. Um, it, quite apart from the cost arguments, however, I think it's important to also consider um, the health and environmental uh, benefits of investment in renewables. Um, it's been proven that um, by investing in renewable energy, you reduce air pollution and that can lead to um, benefits in terms of healthcare costs and environmental costs, which actually are dramatically higher um, than the costs of the actual investments themselves, sometimes as much as eight times um, higher. Um, so these are our benefits which need to be factored in to government decision making. Um, I'm pleased to say there are many examples of this already happening across Asia. So in Bangladesh, for example, um, the power minister has announced that they will be reviewing all but three of their 29 um, planned coal plants. In Vietnam, um, the government is now going through an energy review and their minister has already said um, he does not expect um, to be developing new coal plants. Um, in India, of course, um, your energy minister just this week um, commented um, that as uh, India's coal plants um, come to the end of their lives, he would not be expecting them to be replaced by new coal, but instead um, to be replaced by renewables. And last but not least, um, we had the major announcement by China at the UN General Assembly in September um, that it will be moving to carbon neutrality by 2060. And it's clear that that target, um, while we still await for further details, it will definitely entail a much quicker adoption of renewables and a much faster move away from coal um, than on current plans. Uh, so overall, it sounds very hopeful. And, uh, you know, for those who are still thinking of investing, be it the governments or the industry, hope they're listening to what the science and the research have to say, what experts in the field like you have to say, that is a win-win for everyone. Absolutely, absolutely. So uh, since your expertise and work is in Asia, uh, let's move to Asia's energy transition. And if Asia can actually do that, it can contribute to cleaner earth in the future due to the large share of both the industrial production and the population size in this region, right? But Absolutely. energy transition is based on economy and Asian economies with different income levels need different policies for this energy transition. So how do we estimate or identify those key indicators for the transition readiness of the countries and uh, how do we ensure that, you know, the sustainable development goals, those targets are met as well? Well, it's definitely true um, that, uh, first of all, India and the rest of Asia will have a very strong need for energy in the future. Um, your, Asia is the driver 
of the world economy, and we don't expect that to change. Um, so the energy transition is a key issue um, for the region. Um, I think it's also true to say that different countries within Asia will have very different options uh, and very different um, capacities um, for developing um, in the renewable sector. Um, solar or wind will make um, more sense in some countries um, than in others. In some countries, hydro um, will also be very important. And so I don't think it's possible to have a single prescription which applies to every country in the region. Um, I think you're also absolutely right that developing countries in Asia need support from the international community. And this is a very strong message um, that the UK is giving to international donors and international um, multilateral development banks. Um, for the need to support countries through the energy transition. Um, the UK announced um, just a few weeks ago the creation of an energy transition council, which would bring together donors, multilateral development banks, and um, countries which need support um, in their energy transition in order to make sure that every country has um, the option of pursuing um, renewable energy. Um, coupled, of course, um, with advice on how to design policies, which is important, uh, and also coupled with international climate finance in the form of loans, for example, um, to help uh, countries through um, the transition. Because I think one interesting thing about renewable energy is that if you're building a solar farm or a wind farm, all of the costs, or almost all of the costs, are at the start of the project. Once it's built, essentially the sun will always shine, um, the wind will always blow, and so it, it will essentially be very, very cheap energy, but there's a high capital cost at the beginning. And so we're trying to work with international partners to ensure that countries have the support um, to access that capital, either through um, public or international financing, or ob obviously also through um, the commercial sector. And specific to India within Asia, which is a developing country with high energy demand and stress on resources, and India's coal production is increasing despite the renewable energy growth. And India has a target of 175 gigawatt of renewable energy capacity by 2022. And and 450 gigawatt by 2030. So under the current policies, the government says India is likely to achieve both its non-fossil fuel target and its emission intensity target. How is COP26 ensuring that countries uh, commit to this nationally determined contributions and work towards achieving them? Like, would incentives help in this scenario? Sure. Well, I mean, first of all, I'd like to start by saying that you know, India's efforts in this area are an absolute inspiration um, to other countries across Asia and indeed the world. Um, the UK wants to work very closely um, with the Indian government um, to help mobilize ambition in other countries. And that will definitely include um, encouraging countries to have ambitious nationally determined contributions on, on reducing emissions, as you say. I think the UK and India also faced very many similar challenges. Um, and that means I think we are natural partners, not just ahead of COP, but I think working on climate change and energy issues beyond COP, uh, COP26 as well. And um, we're already um, developing strong joint partnerships um, to develop new solutions in areas such as renewable development and also energy efficiency. I feel that the UK and India um, can really play an important role in mobilizing others ahead of COP26. And I was very impressed to hear um, the Indian Minister of Power say recently that India could achieve 60% non-fossil fuel share by 2030. I think that is an incredible achievement and one that we hope India will reflect in an updated 
um, NDC ahead of COP26. Um, I think more widely on your question about ensuring that countries commit to ambitious NDCs, I think there is a question of countries leading by example. We, this is part of the thinking behind the event um, that we'll be holding on the 12th of December with world leaders um, to showcase the countries who are showing ambition, whether on NDCs or through their own um, energy plans. Um, and I think it's also a question, of course, of diplomatic approaches, um, such as my own, with governments across the region, but I think also mobilising actors um, in the non-governmental field. So we're trying to work very hard with business, with media, with NGOs um, across um, the world to, to build pressure on governments and to build momentum um, for uh, real action um, to tackle emissions worldwide. This December, uh, when the conference happens, it's going to be a reality check, a nudge for governments, maybe uh, looking at others, they might want to do better and act better. So, Absolutely, absolutely. We want to create a race to the top. Um, so uh, we hope that it will be successful in, in ensuring continued momentum um, ahead of November next year. Absolutely. That sounds great. And um, in this, the role of industry also is a very, very huge thing because of the economic slowdown in 2020. It has led to some emission reduction, but post-COVID, there will be a rebound to the GHG emissions, right? But how can the countries take the situation as an opportunity to build back better with low carbon initiatives and the industry, what would the role of it be? Well, as we've already discussed, um, governments have a key role here in sending signals um, to industry. And so if governments enact economic stimulus packages which are investing in the renewable sector, I'm very sure um, the industry will follow um, by allocating resources accordingly. Um, but I think industry also has an independent role um, in the fight against climate change. Industry can send messages to governments about the need for policy shifts, for greater action on climate change. Um, we found in the UK that by providing clarity on our long-term goals, um, industry was then able to have the certainty to come up with investments um, in wind and solar and so forth. And so I think the partnership between government and, and industry is particularly important. I think industry can also um, have an important role in terms of sending signals to governments when things are going wrong. Um, I would note that in Cambodia, um, recently international garments clients um, uh, wrote to the government um, of Cambodia saying that it was essential for them to have access to a renewable energy supply. And that reflected pressure from their customers who wanted to ensure that whenever they were buying clothes from these companies, they weren't contributing um, to climate change. And it also reflected pressure from their own shareholders um, who again um, increasingly make their voices heard in pressing companies um, to take greater action on uh, emissions and climate change. Another way that companies can, of course, um, take action is by committing to net zero targets. And we have seen really major companies worldwide in the US, in Europe, across Asia, um, take commitments um, to um, net zero targets. Uh, so a date by which um, they will, um, on average, um, not emit any carbon. And I think that's also sending an important message um, to consumers. Um, but also to governments um, uh, in the countries concerned. Um, so another uh, way in which um, the markets can help support change would be through green finance instruments. So governments across Asia and the world are looking at releasing green bonds to help finance investments in renewable energy 
for example. And we saw um, last year um, that green bond issuance worldwide climbed by nearly 50% to a record high of $255 billion. And we're um, sure that that will continue um, to rise in the years ahead. Um, this is an area where the UK, of course, has a particular um, uh, experience to share with our partners. And the City of London is a global financial centre, and we have a lot of experience in the green finance sector, and we're trying to share that experience with governments such as that of India. Usually, industry is seen as a resource guzzler and in the negative light, but when industry takes charge, you know great things can happen because of the kind of resources that they have and the kind of decision-making that they are able to do independently. So this is great, and uh, you have uh, spoken about investments and the whole financial aspect of it even a couple of times during our conversation. So let me directly ask, you about the Green Climate Fund and uh, because in 2015 during the Addis Ababa action agenda it was decided that US hundred billion dollars would be mobilized jointly by 2020 every single year for developing uh, countries to tackle climate change but uh, considering the situation right now there will be a fall in countries contribution so what is the way forward for both the developed and the developing countries? Well, we think that the um, international commitments to climate finance are essential and um, they um, have to be a central part of our approach um, as we prepare for COP26. Um, I'm pleased to say the UK um, is meeting our commitments and indeed we have doubled our international climate finance to over 11 billion pounds between uh, 2021 and 2025. And we are now pressing other international donors to follow our lead. Um, so um, we're determined to do everything we can um, to make sure that um, the, the commitments are respected. Um, it's clear that the developing countries do continue to need a lot of support um, in order to achieve the energy transition. And as we've discussed, um, often um, this is a transition which will pay for itself, um, but is highly capital intensive. And so making sure that they have the capital um, to make those investments is crucial. Um, we are uh, also clear that um, international climate finance um, must not be spent only on reducing emissions, but we also have to um, ensure that we're helping countries deal with the impacts of climate change here and now. This is an area called adaptation and resilience. Uh, if you're talking about global development, it is all the countries helping each other to live a more sustainable life and a sustainable development. Absolutely, yeah. So uh, one last question, if I may ask you to indicate maybe two or three highlights of the UK's approach to green recovery from COVID. And I think I might break that up into the UK's domestic approach. Um, and the UK's international message. If, uh, the, our Prime Minister um, very recently set out new plans for the UK to build back greener by making the UK the world leader in clean wind energy. He was clear that that would be creating jobs um, as well as slashing carbon emissions and boosting UK exports. Um, it's been announced that £160 million and will be made available to upgrade ports and infrastructure uh, and will enable the sector to support up to 60,000 jobs directly and indirectly by 2030. And, uh, the Prime Minister has also made clear um, that within the decade we'll be at the forefront of the green industrial revolution as we accelerate our progress towards net zero emissions by 2050. So that's on the domestic side in terms of what we're doing nationally. Internationally, um, as I said earlier, we're clear that every country will have its own green recovery path. 
there will not be one size fits all and the um, solutions in each country will differ. But I think our key message would be that the world has a once in a generation opportunity now um, to invest in a green recovery. A green recovery that will deliver jobs, that will deliver security, and that will deliver um, a growth for the years ahead, as well as helping to deliver our international Paris commitments. Absolutely. I think uh, more than just the decade, this year is meant for climate action and, uh, you know, less of discussion, more of action towards the climate and sustainability that will actually take care of all of us. Indeed. And I think you know, every person, every company, um, every society um, will have its own role to play in delivering the change. This is um, a challenge, which is a big challenge, um, but which is one which we can't um, uh, meet if we all work together. Thank you so much for your time, Ken. That was a conversation with Ken O'Flati, COP26 Regional Ambassador for Asia Pacific and South Asia. We spoke about the countdown to COP26, the climate change conference happening in UK in November 2021, the status of various countries and more specifically, the situation in Asia and the role of UK. You can find this episode on Spotify, Anchor.fm, Google Podcast, Apple Podcast and do share your thoughts with me on Facebook, Insta, Twitter where you can find me as Pratyusha CFA 18. I'll be back with another episode of the Prana Cafe podcast. Till then, this is Pratyusha Parkala signing off.